Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Morning. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here at Grant, and we're so glad that you have joined us as we continue in our series in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Uh, well, friends, we have a special treat today. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Pierre Gilbert. Uh, Pierre is a great friend of Grant Memorial, having preached here numerous times before and taught uh, classes uh, as well uh, a number of times in the past uh, decade or so. Uh, Pierre is also a friend and past professor of mine, and so I know firsthand uh, what we are in for today. Uh, Pierre has just uh, recently retired as Associate Professor of Bible and Theology at CMU, where he served for 24 years, and now uh, he holds the position of Associate Emeritus Professor. Uh, Pierre has written uh, many books and articles, a few of which are in our library that you can pick up uh, afterwards, and uh, he is still writing perhaps even more uh, in his retirement. Uh, Pierre is passionate about the Bible and has extensive knowledge uh, of the very text that we have been studying and working through as a church congregation. And so without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the platform, uh, Pierre Gilbert. Thank you, Cam. <clears throat> well, there we go. Well, good morning, good people of Grand Memorial. It's great to be here. Always a treat uh, to be here. And uh, as you know, I was asked to speak on Genesis 17, uh, 9 to 14, the Abrahamic covenant. And I must say that every time I was working on this particular project, uh, the terrible attack on Israel on October 7th uh, would always come to mind. And so I've been praying very, very diligently about the conflict. And I would invite you to keep praying for that as well, particularly for the hostages and for all the innocent people who have been and continue to be affected by this, this conflict. Um, <clears throat> in the last couple of months, I have been asked to reflect on four topics that I had never like really spoken about or preached on as such. Uh, the first was the Sabbath. Then there was the Lord's Supper, the Shema here or Israel that is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And then today, Genesis 17, 9 to 14, which underlines the importance of the circumcision in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. So I had done Genesis 12, but never 14. So, but I got to tell you, these four sermons have one thing in common. They all address the number one problem that believers in God face. And that is what I call faith amnesia. Faith amnesia is a condition that is inevitable, inexorable, and inescapable. It is, but if it is a condition that threatens every Christian, it is not necessarily terminal. What I'm trying to say is that while faith amnesia is like a, a tiger 
lurking in the undergrowth, waiting to make its move, were not without defense. And surprisingly enough, this is what our text is about. So let me read the text first so we get a good sense of what, it's, what we're going to be looking at. So Genesis 17, 9 to 14. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice the order of the pronouns. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, Genesis 17 represents the fourth time God appears to Abraham to declare his covenant with him and his posterity. So let me, let me briefly go through each encounter. Uh, in Genesis 12, uh, God outlines the basic terms of the covenant. First of all, a posterity. I will make you a great nation. Relationship with God. I will bless you, right? You'll be my people, and I will be your God. And then finally, land. I will give you a home, a territory, a place to live. Now, it is worth noting that even before God enunciates the terms of the covenant, he tells Abraham that he's going to have to leave his home and go to Canaan. Now, altogether, ladies and gentlemen, that's about 1,100 miles. No planes. No trains, no trucks, no motor cars, no zeppelins. You are going to travel by foot with everything you have at the speed of goats. Not the speed of light, the speed of goats. I don't know how fast that is, but it's not very fast, I'm sure. So here we are at the age of 75, <laughs> and Abraham is told to leave his ancestral home. I mean, I'm 64. And when I'm invited to Steinbeck to speak at Steinbeck Bible College to give a lecture, I have to think about it a little bit, right? It's, uh, what is it, 70 kilometers there and back. So I have to think, right? I mean, I'm an old guy, right? I think about these things. It's an old trip. Now, Abraham... Abraham's response is absolutely extraordinary. He doesn't argue with God. He doesn't bargain with God. 
He doesn't even try to hide from God like, you know, some other well-known guy did. He just, the text tells us, he leaves. Now, the key to understanding Abraham's willingness to obey God is linked to his wife's inability to have children, right, Sarai. Now, I realize that for a lot of young people, um, you know, this may be a little bit puzzling because a lot of young people don't think that having children uh, is all that important. But that is only because we've been indoctrinated since the mid-70s into thinking that motherhood and children are not central to the human experience. Now, as many of these young people will one day discover, uh, they will find that they were sold a bill of goods, as is often the case. But for Abraham and the men and women of his time, not being able to have children was, was tragic. It meant he had no future. But then something extraordinary happens. God appears. And you know, you've got to understand that it is often when our situation is at its darkest that God appears. And that is because it is often when it is darkest that we're most open to hear God. Okay? So next time you find yourself in a very dark place, remember Abraham. So God tells Abraham he will have a posterity. He'll have a future, which he didn't have until now. A posterity so great that no one will be able to count them. Abraham is not only the object of a fantastic blessing. He and his posterity would be a blessing for all the nations of the earth. So, Abraham accepts God's invitation to move because his heart is bursting with gratitude and joy. And you find that that's constant in Abraham's life. So that's Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, God reiterates the terms of the covenant with a special emphasis on the land that he would give him and his descendants forever. <clears throat> in Genesis 15, God addresses the doubts and misgivings that Abraham is having. This is why in 15, God begins his third address with a word of comfort and encouragement. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. And on that occasion, God proceeds to reiterate and reinforce the terms of the covenant by participating in a covenant ritual. He wants to impress him. All right. In chapter 17, God appears again to Abraham. And the word used here to describe God is Elohim. And that's very intentional because Elohim is used here to denote, to emphasize God's power and majesty. That's the same word that is used in Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It is used to emphasize his power. Now, it's been about 25 years since God promised him a great posterity. 
I got to tell you, very often, words are cheap, aren't they? Right? Anybody can say words. Anybody can promise anything. Easiest thing in the world. It's so easy that politicians do it all the time uh, during election campaigns. Right? And we swallow it whole. And we love those promises. <laughs> Making promises is easy. Making sure that your promises comes through. Now, that's the hard part. Moses is nearly a hundred years, and he still doesn't have one son, can you imagine? So I suspect that Abraham was beginning to entertain some serious doubts about the fulfillment of this particular promise. So at about a hundred years old then, uh, Abraham, at this point, needs more than words to address his misgivings about God's promise of a posterity. And God knows it, right? So when he appears again to him, he adds a little requirement to the covenant that is intended to help Abraham wait and trust for God's timing. Every male among you shall be circumcised. There you go. Circumcision. Now, that may sound a little bit bizarre, but let me make a few comments that I hope will help you understand what God was trying to do here. Number one, the circumcision was to serve as a sign, a constant, intimate, ever-present, and irreversible symbol of the covenant God made with his people. And you may wonder, now, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the deal here? What's the connection between, you know, uh, uh, this particular action, you know, cutting the foreskin and the covenant? The connection is in this. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, to make a covenant, to enter into a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. That's the Hebrew word that is used. It's, a, it's an expression that points to the practice of slaughtering an animal and cutting it in order to ratify an agreement. The permanent mark left because of the cutting of the foreskin on the male member serves to evoke God's covenant with the people, it's a sign, can't be erased, number one. Number two, the circumcision expressed the uniqueness and distinctiveness of Israel and her relationship with God. Now, <clears throat> circumcision wasn't unique to Israel. There were other nations that uh, practiced it as well. But in all of those other nations, it was something that young men would undergo as a rite of passage associated with fertility and nature worship, idolatry. Now, <clears throat> I don't have the time here to explain all of this in detail, but you've got to understand, in Israel, there was to be no link whatsoever between God and nature, worship, or fertility. It was central to the Torah. 
In fact, that is why when you look at the Song of Solomon, you can't find the name of God in there. Check it out, you will see. There's a reason for that. I could explain it, but I don't have the time to do it. I'll have to come back when you get to the Song of Solomon, like in five years or six years from now, right? <laughs> All right. You got that? Three, circumcision was an expression of God's grace. There were no prerequisites for adoption into the covenant. The male infant was circumcised on the eighth day, symbolizing membership in the people of the covenant, that, the, uh, that membership was free and completely dependent on God's grace. The Jewish commentator Dennis Prager writes, in Judaism, circumcision is not a right of manhood for the individual who circumcised. It is a permanent reminder to the Jewish male and his wife that he and she are members of a covenantal people. By being performed on the eighth day, circumcision comes to symbolize man's part in creation. God created for six days, rested on the seventh and on the eighth day, we humans take over. Number four, circumcision symbolized an attitude of humility, submission, and love towards God. It was to be a symbol of something else, not an end in and of itself. And so we read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God, he is doing the action this time, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So, of course, it's an echo of Deuteronomy 6, 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But here Moses adds, and you shall live life and death. You love God, you live. You hate God because there's no in-between. You die. Number five, the most important role of the circumcision was to act as a reminder of the unique covenant God had made with the people. It was a reminder. It was to be a reminder of who they were as God's people. Faith amnesia. Here's that expression again, right? Faith amnesia religious assimilation, ideological colonialism would prove to be a constant and present danger for the people of Israel as they interacted with the people of the promised land. Because there, they would encounter people who had beliefs and practices that would incite them to worship nature rather than worship the Creator. It was paramount to have means by which the people would be reminded every day and every moment of the day that they were the people of the covenant. Circumcision was just one of them. There were others. The recitation of the Shema, for example, right here or Israel. Uh, the sacrificial system. The memorization of the law, the Torah and so on and so forth. The point was to give every possible way to remember who God was, who they were, and the mandate that God had given to them. 
And it was infinitely critical that they remembered for the fate of all of humanity depended on it. It was critical that Israel remember her God because our fate today, your fate, my fate, the fate of our children, grandchildren, of all of humanity depended on them remembering who they were. Okay, so what, is this, what does all this mean for us? Well, I'm going to tell you two things. Let's begin with the first one. The New Testament makes it clear that those who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer required to be circumcised. The circumcised and the uncircumcised are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The circumcision of the flesh has been replaced by circumcision of the heart, which is carried out through the presence and agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, my point is that while Christians no longer need to be physically circumcised, we need to ensure that we are circumcised of heart. And that means that we have given our hearts to God, that we submit to God, that we love God and obey God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And you know what those two most important commands are. You shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor. That's it. As simple and as complicated as that. So that's the first thing. The other thing I want to say is that we need to take every available means to remember this covenant we have with God because this is what circumcision was supposed to do. This reminder to love God and to be committed to what we know to be true about God and ourselves, this reminder is urgent, imperative, and pressing. And here I think particularly of young people who are and will continue to be extremely vulnerable to the ideological colonialism the church is experiencing today. We live in an ideological environment that is extremely toxic right now. I've never seen it. I told you I'm 64 years old. I've never seen anything like this. We live in a world that is ferociously hostile to God. In a world that is almost in a full state of insurgency and rebellion against God, against truth, and against reality itself. If you had told me, say, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, that we would be witnessing what we are witnessing right now in our society, in our culture, I would have told you to go eat a poutine and maybe take a vacation. In the 60s and 70s, which I remember well, 
We saw the rise of the sexual revolution, the subversion of the traditional family, and the demonization of motherhood. Despite what we were experiencing back then, I told you, I remember that. I would say that, you know, Christians and non-Christians still leave, lived in a kind of a common moral framework. That is increasingly not the case anymore. As Victor Davis Hanson likes to say, he's a great classicist, he says, we're living now in revolutionary times. I don't know exactly what to call it. Some people call it postmodernism on steroids. We're essentially reverting to pre-civilizational tribalism. That's the popular term I like to use to translate critical race theory, right? I mean, if you are at all attached to universities or that, you know, the university culture, critical race theory is a big deal. But Hansen basically refers to it as pre-civilizational tribalism. We are being ushered into a world that is in full denial of reality, objective truth, and even more dangerous than that, a denial of history. They don't want us to remember because it is our memories that define us. The world, as the Apostle John puts it, is screaming day and night that its version of truth is unquestionable, undeniable, and unassailable. It's as if the world is saying 24-7 now that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal what you think it equals to. Now, what 2 plus 2 equals really depends on the agenda of whoever is controlling the agenda, the cultural elite. Don't you dare say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Don't you dare say that there is an absolute God who defines reality and morality and will keep us accountable for our thoughts and our actions. Don't you dare say that there is such a thing as objective reality, that one day that reality will reassert itself, no matter how hard we fight or deny it, it will reassert itself. And if you want to read a good book, I would suggest you read 1984. I've been telling my students now for years to read that book. It describes exactly what we're in right now. So here's the problem now, right? Truth is now determined by what feels real, okay? That's how now a lot of people, particularly young people, come to truth now. It's determined by what feels real. The world is so effective at pushing its nihilistic worldview that over time, the kingdom of God, reality as defined by God, begins to feel less and less real, and the kingdom of this world begins to feel more and more real. And when that happens, guess what? We start living by the standards of this world rather than the standards of the kingdom of God. And when that happens on a sufficiently large scale in the church, among the people of God, guess what you have? The church becomes fruitless and ineffective. Now, Canada's most famous intellectual, Jordan Peterson, says that we tend to imitate or become what we worship. Well, the magnificent G.K. Chesterton said something very much like it about 100 years earlier. 
And basically what they mean by that is if we worship the highest good we can conceive of, we will tend to imitate and become like this highest good. But if we worship which is that which is lower than us, we'll also begin to imitate our object of worship and increasingly become like it. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote before these two guys, said that very eloquent, uh, very well in Romans chapter 1. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, here's the bottom line. Either we worship the Creator and become more like Him, or we worship nature and become more like it. So if you want to look like a frog and act like a frog, you know what to do. You see, it's one or the other. There's no middle position in all of this. Either we worship the Creator and become more like Him, or we worship nature, and that leads to worshiping eventually. It, it leads to worshiping ourselves. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a black hole. Now, frankly, I don't know if the church will manage to change the trajectory our culture is engaged on. We don't know. That belongs to God. But what I can tell you this morning, and I want you to have hope, is that the church has what it takes to have a fantastic impact on the people around us at this critical time. We know the nature of the illness that afflicts us. We know where the cure is, and we have the Holy Spirit. All we need, like Abraham, all we need is a little bit of courage to proclaim the cure available through Jesus Christ. God bless you all. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church. <laughs>